Our theme during Advent has been glory. And we've appealed to that theme because it's redolent and pervasive in Scripture, and particularly at the time of the coming of Jesus into the world, God made flesh. And we've introduced that theme with the idea that glory is something that we all think about, whether we are aware of it or not. And we've said each week to remind you that when you're young, you think glory is, you know, within your reach. And if I just do this, and if I go this way, and this thing happens, I'll have it, and I will matter. And when you're older, you look back, and you think, you start to believe that whatever it might have been for you to have glory, that's that's in the rearview mirror. And Advent explodes both ideas. Whether you're young or older, you'll be afflicted. Newsflash. You're going to suffer. And when you do, you're going to reach for comfort. Nobody just sits in their suffering. They try to find things that will comfort them. And with those two truths indisputably before us, here's the question. When it happens, what will you do? Where will you look for comfort? It matters to have a sense of that question. Glory has a place for comfort. In fact, the thesis of this morning's sermon from Paul's words is this. Glory comforts. The most audacious thing you'll hear in the whole passage is what you heard Becky cite there in verse 17. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That is either the worst thing that you could hear in your suffering or the best thing. Because if it's not true, then it is a pipe's dream. But if it is true, it is the best thing you could ever know. Welcome the debate of the souls. How does glory comfort? That's the question we're all posed with today, and we, which we will be posed with in life if it hasn't already been posed to you. We want to think of that comfort under three heads. What is the character of that comfort? Is it comfort just in name only or in just sort of uh, I don't know, Andy Williams, it's not. If that's the character of the comfort, what is the basis for that comfort? Why should we rest in it at all? And finally, we're going to ask then, well, then what is the key to it? It's one thing to say that there's a character. It's another thing to say there's a basis for it, but like, what is the path to it? Let's see if we can go there. You've heard the passage, so let's just consider it together. Let's talk first about the character of this comfort. We started in chapter four. So four chapters, three chapters have already happened. And what happens in chapter four is merely an elaboration on where Paul has already gone at the very beginning of the letter. In 2 Corinthians chapter one, you will hear him lay the groundwork saying something like this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all what? Comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Did you catch that? There's the comfort, glory, hello. If you're not listening, there it is. That's how he starts the letter. And he just riffs on that idea, the remainder of it. Chapter four is just an elaboration of it. And for him to say that, he is only preparing you for what, he'll, what you already heard him say, but he said a little bit earlier in verse seven of chapter one, 
Our hope for you is unshaken. Excuse me. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. You heard in our passage, I do not want you to lose heart. We do not lose heart. Why? What is this affliction? What is this comfort? In the midst of our affliction, is the comfort merely a, a call to, hey, just take it. Take it like a man. Take it like a strong woman. Take it like a woman. Whatever. Just take it. Or, or do we pretend it doesn't hurt? Is that the comfort? No. Whatever the character of this comfort is, it is not the absence of affliction. It is not that the skies clear and everything improves. The rains stop, the heat comes back on, all of that. It's not the character of this comfort, it is something else. So where is the comfort? The comfort is in the conjunctions. What? Uh, to put it crudely, every time you read this passage, you should circle the butts. <laughs> but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Okay, we get it. Paul, what are you saying? There is something to the character of this comfort. It's not a sedative. But in the affliction, in the being perplexed, in the persecution, in being struck down, whatever it is, whatever this comfort is, it means this. You will suffer, but you will not be swallowed. To reach back to an illustration that we've used earlier, I think maybe in our talk about Ephesians or about the Holy Spirit, it is, this comfort is like a buoy. The buoy is in the tide, and it rolls with the waves, and you feel those waves, but you are not plunged beneath them. Though at the time, it feels like you're drowning. You feel like you're plunging. This comfort, whatever its character, is that you're in it, but you're not beneath it. You feel the waves, but you're not drowning, even though it feels like it. Given these contrasts, in light of these strong characterizations of really struggling with what he's talking about, what he's saying is this. The character of the comfort is such that whenever you've suffered, if you're suffering right now, if you're afflicted with any something, whether it's physical, relational, emotional, spiritual, whatever that case might be, what happens to you inevitably is that it's like a pair of blinders get put on your head and all you see is the struggle it's all you know. It fills your frame. And if you could sort of widen your gaze, you would. But it just sort of naturally feels like, this is it. This is my whole world. This is my whole reality. Paul is suggesting to us gently but firmly, the character of this comfort is in some ways to pull the blinders off that you might see more things that are true, not just the truth of your affliction. It is proper to feel the pain and the struggle and to feel like that is all your world, that is all your truth, the character of this comfort is to sort of let you not isolate yourself from other truth. It's the 1940s. He was married at a young age. He becomes ordained to pastoral ministry of a congregational um, uh, congregation in Iowa. He goes by the name of Reverend Ames. He marries early. His wife is named Josephina. 
they become pregnant. She becomes pregnant earlier in their marriage. She dies in childbirth. The child survives, but is clearly not long for the world and lasts about a month. And before she can die, though, Reverend Ames baptizes his daughter, whom they name Angelina. And every baptism that he does from that time forward, he, he recalls the moment of baptizing his daughter who died a month after she lost her mother and, lost, and he lost her. And in the telling of that story in Marilyn Robinson's novel, Gilead, he makes a very succinct, strong description and summary. I think of what Paul is talking about here in the character of the comfort. He says this, I don't know what to say except that the worst misfortune isn't only misfortune. If Advent is true and affliction comes to you, it is proper and healthy not to deny that misfortune has befallen you. But the character of this comfort is also to say, even the worst misfortune isn't only misfortune. It is to discover that no matter how much the affliction isolates you from anything, this misfortune is not everything. Other things are true. I'll push us a little here because at every example and instance and experience of affliction, you're at a crossroads. And it is not a given how you will face that, how you will respond to it, what will the outcome of it be like for you. As others have said more often and more wisely than I ever could, when affliction comes to you, one of two things will happen. You will either become better or bitter. There was a bishop of the early third century. His name was Origen. Man, he got in a lot of trouble for saying some stuff. Mm. He went to timeout in a big way. But he said something in his meditation upon this passage that you might hear it and it, it kind of hits you. And it might be painting with too broad of a brush, but I think if you sift it, there's, there's a little kernel of truth in there. Origen said this when it comes to this passage. To be afflicted has the meaning of a circumstance that happens to us without our free choice. While to be crushed implies our free choice and that it has been conquered by affliction and given into its power. What does he mean? Many, not all, instances of affliction come to you unbidden, unwarranted, unexpected, undeserved. What happens then, we have a part in where it goes. The nature of this comfort is such that comfort is offered, but comfort also has to be received. When I was in Boy Scouts, and they taught us how to help a drowning person that was at risk of drowning, here's a picture. Uh, you were told to expect that when you swim out to a potential that's, person that's potentially to drown, you should expect them to thrash so violently in the fear of what's happening to them that they might actually strike you while you're trying to help them. That in their panic, they will not receive your help 
because they're so terrified of what is befalling them. And you had to be ready for that. And you have to kind of almost restrain them. And now the Boy Scouts have come up with a new thing. Just throw them a towel, right? Um, stuff like that, to avoid that. That is more than an example of what happens in a pool of water. It's a metaphor for what happens when you are afflicted. That you have the capacity to be so drawn in to yourself and what is befalling you that you will thrash and, res- and refuse the attempted help. It's a struggle. But the nature of the struggle is such that you might receive it. And that's a delicate question. And I uh, do not suggest to you that just my few words explains every experience of suffering. Only to say, the comfort that is offered is a comfort that must be received and it won't be forced upon you. And that is why there is another aspect to the character of this comfort that I think you all can relate to. And it's what we have already heard in our in our affirmation of faith there from James chapter 2. When it comes to suffering and affliction, the character of this comfort presents us with an opportunity. Twice you've heard Paul say, we carry about in our bodies the death of Jesus that we might also manifest the life of Jesus in us. And that's just sort of an ancient way of saying we encounter many of the things that he faced or what humans face naturally by way of affliction, by nature of being human, but in that moment there is opportunity that in the same way suffering came to him and provision came to him and he began to discover and display what it means to trust in a God who is even the Lord over all of our suffering in some sense of the word, that there is a way of displaying his life in our confrontation with it. And that's why we read James. Consider it pure joy, my brethren, when you meet various trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. How else do you learn steadfastness about having, uh, without having to face a stiff wind of resistance? It's, there's no such thing. No muscle grows without resistance. No steadfastness ever becomes part of the center of your being unless you've been in the valley of the shadow of death. And therefore, in that affliction, one, character, one feature of this character is the opportunity to grow the life of Jesus as soon as you start carrying around the death of Jesus in you. As George Herbert, the 17th century poet, put it, we are the trees whom shaking fastens more. Why? Why is that? Why does it fasten us? Well, that's where we got to talk about the basis of this comfort, because that all sounds fantastic. I would love to know that my worst misfortune isn't only misfortune, and I would love to know that there is opportunity in the midst of my affliction that might actually grow the life of Jesus in me in the course of me facing that. However, I'm not just a life coach here. I'm not a life coach at all. I'm here to point us to what is the hope and the truth that holds us to that. And that, the basis of that comfort has both present manifestations and and it's also based on something in the future, obviously. In the same way that Paul has spoken of how there is an opportunity for the life of Jesus to be manifest in my life when affliction comes my way, there's another reason and another basis for this comfort. He will speak of the death of Jesus being carried around in his body. Why? 
because it meant life for them. It meant life for those who heard of Jesus through his telling of Jesus, but he didn't come to them without having been harassed, harangued, persecuted, struck down, perplexed, facing every manner of affliction. The, the blows he took, the scalds he have, the scars he has, the trauma he experienced, that was, that was life for them. The only reason they ever heard it was for him to go through the gauntlet. And it meant the increase of faith in others. It meant the increase of thanksgiving, both in him to see it take root and in them for them to know that there is a love that is beyond even their worst affliction. The increase of the gospel, the increase of thanksgiving leads to the increase of God's glory. That's a present experience now. Now, what is he speaking of? He's speaking of his vocation as one who was involved in the direct spread of the gospel through his ministry, being an evangelist and an apostle. But friends, that which was true for him is true for anybody in this room, no matter what your vocation is. How many of you in this room have a story of having received a certain comfort a peace that passes all understanding. And just by virtue of us knowing your story of that, that you are a strength to us. You heard it recited. You heard it spoken of. And she is not alone in this room of people who are a strength to me. To how your story faced it, received it, walks in it, and of course with a limp. That's a basis of comfort for anyone that might hear it. But of course, the comfort that you might receive in the moment is of course based on the comfort that comes to us later. And in case you missed it, and in case you weren't sure, what is the basis of that comfort? Here it is. We have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written. I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing what? that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. That's the gospel. He's quoting Psalm 116 there of someone in the midst of their affliction who names their affliction but says, I believe. I believe that God is still good even in the midst of all the awfulness and tragedy and injustice all around me. So as the psalmist was true for then, so it is true for Paul here. Why can you still be in the midst of affliction, in the valley of the shadow of death, and still believe God is good because of this? He who raised Jesus from the dead will raise your body also. Oh yeah, the resurrection. Right, forgot. It's part of it. Not just the resurrection, though. It has its own value. It's glory enough. But he doesn't finish that sentence without saying what resurrection is actually unto that's even greater than resurrection itself. And there's a, there's a line that, that Craig reminded me of this week from, from something from John Piper that he wrote a long time ago. John Piper, he said this, the critical question for every generation is this, if you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? Oh, that sounds great. Sounds wonderful. Who wouldn't want it? But here's the question. Would you be cool with that if Jesus wasn't there? It's sort of a check of your own theology. It's a check of your own heart. 
It is to ask yourself, what does it most matter to? This resurrection is unto what? It is unto being in the presence of the Lord forever. I have no concept of that. The very first scene of that silly film 20 years ago called Love Actually, uh, parents, do your research and have the remote. I'm saying, just saying. But the earliest scene is actual footage from not long after the World Trade Center in 9-11, two years later. And the first scene is a bunch of shots of people greeting each other in airport terminals and what it's like to have a reunion. And Hugh Grant, who is speaking there over it all, he says, you know, when, when people on those airplanes were calling to their friends and to their loved ones, it was not messages of hate, it was messages of love. Because love is everywhere. And you see it there in an airport terminal. The thrill and the delight of being someone with someone you love, with whom you have a shared story. And you are delighted that they're there. Now, like most company, it's like fish, right? After three days. Can you imagine, though, a kind of reunion in which the joy remains unabated? I, I think that's what Paul was trying to point us to, is the basis of this comfort in knowing that that awaits us. Matthew B. Crawford, when he was in college, was an electrician. And then he ends up getting his PhD in um, philosophy of political science. And then he graduates and he starts working for a think tank. And he quickly quits because he discovers that when you work for a think tank, they just give you conclusions that they want you to agree on and stick with that and never deny them lest you lose your funding. And so he leaves academia. You know what he becomes? Uh, a motorcycle repairman. You've probably heard of him because you may have heard of the title of this book, Shop Class is Soulcraft. Working with your hands is a profound experience of learning that he thinks rivals even a college education. Things shifted for him. And one other thing that's happened to his story is that this year he's become a Christian. And when asked about it, he says, I, I, I'm a little reluctant even to be open about what's happened. I don't want to profane the experience. But in an interview he gave last April, he kind of alludes to it. He alludes to something that he now agrees with C.S. Lewis about the nature of reality. And he talks about it like this. He says this, I've come around to the intuition that grounds C.S. Lewis's thought. There is a created order which we are not the authors of. Crucially, this order is good. That is because its author is good, and he made it out of love. If you are fortunate enough to be hit with this experience, it comes as a surprise gift. It is like dropping acid. Under its influence, you feel like you've gained perceptual access to the most fundamental layer, which was always there waiting to be noticed. Meditate on that one for the rest of the day, if you will. It is one thing to believe there is a created order, that there's some sort of intelligence behind everything. It is quite another thing to believe that the intelligence behind everything in creation is actually one whose primary, a primary characteristic is full of love and therefore an interest in relationship with you 
you small thing, you insignificant thing. That is the language of conversion, but that is also the language of comfort. Such that one day, as Paul says elsewhere, we shall see him face to face. And we shall know him even as we are fully known. That's the basis of this comfort. And I want you to feel that. And I want you to hear that. And of all ways to do that, I would first like to show you a clip from a show, followed by a song from our ensemble, and then I will take a few moments to lead us to that last thing. What is the path to this comfort? This is a clip from, of all places, The Walking Dead. I promise there will be no zombies, there will be no violence. But any show that has 20 million viewers, you have to go, what's going on there? This is a scene when Tyrese, who is foregrounded, has been afflicted by one of the zombies, one of the walking dead, and he is coming in and out of consciousness, and he's about to die. And here you will see him having a vision of being on the verge of death. And he's going to see people whom he loves who have already died. And then after that scene, you will see his friends bury him. I want you to watch closely, and I also want you to listen closely to what they say as they're burying him. And then after that, I'd like you to hear a song by the Porter's Gate that puts that in frame. Listen and watch. Troubling reports of cannibalism having broken out in refugee camps along the Republic's transportation corridor. And despite the string of victories by rebel forces, there are disturbing reports of increasing the brutality of their tactics, including the wholesale destruction of villages, burning down local prisons, targeting of civilians, and even the widespread mutilation of children and young mothers. And this seems like only the beginning of their campaign that they label as an endless war against the You sure? It's okay, Tyrese. You gotta know that now. It isn't just okay. It's better now. We look not at what can be seen, but we look at what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made from hands, eternal in the heavens. In the heavens.
of this comfort is that he will come to answer and that everything that is sad will become untrue and the path to this comfort having heard what its basis is on is simple but profound and you hear it in the last two verses for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The path to it is to be able to look at that which we cannot see and only see by the eyes of faith. And I want to bring Matthew B. Crawford up for one more word because of his greatest contribution to the social discourse of our day in the last 15 years, it's the idea of attention. Attention is a finite resource. I know that. You sit through my sermons. But it's also a commodity. And a lot of people are spending billions of dollars both to get your attention and keep it. And in the course of that, he will argue that we are losing the capacity to know what is worth giving our attention to. And so he says, our changing technological environment generates a need for ever more stimulation. The content of the stimulation almost becomes irrelevant. Our distractibility seems to indicate that we are agnostic on the question of what is worth paying attention to, that is what to value. It would seem that Paul is saying that our capacity to rest in the comfort that is offered us in Jesus has to do with what we give our attention to. And you have a billion things and I have a billion things to give my attention to. And if I give it to, every, if I give it to presidential politics or geopolitics or cultural politics exclusively, I am not preparing myself for when all of those things fade into irrelevance given my experience. 
Paul is calling us to attend to the things that are unseen. And what in that world could that mean? What could it look like? It means to give our attention in the direction of what we can only see by what he has told us in the promise. So what is the worth of perhaps you memorizing verse 17 and recalling it and reciting it to yourself every time the world becomes dark? I'll tell you why it's worth it, because that is a little bit of what it means to look at that which is unseen and eternal. What is the worth of praying back to God the promises made to us from the Psalms and elsewhere, including the Psalms that say, where are you? (laughs) Have you forgotten me? And yet I will again praise you. Because that feels a little bit like what it means to feast your eyes on that which is unseen and eternal. What is the worth of coming to this table, confessing your sins and hearing about the pardon that comes to us in Jesus? Because that is a little bit of what it looks like to focus your attention in the direction of what is unseen and eternal. That's the worth of it. That is our aspiration. It's not a formula. But how do you know when you're close? when you're in the ballpark. And I think you can recite the words of George Herbert one last time when he said this. I will complain yet praise. I will bewail, approve, and all my sour sweet days I will lament and love. You don't write that unless your attention has been in the direction of things that are unseen. And that's where we're coming to this table. But not before we prepare ourselves for it. Let's pray. On behalf of all those in this room, Father, who long for this to be true but just can't quite get over the hump of thinking that it might be. And for all of us who will have that experience more than once and perhaps long-lasting. I pray that you would remind us that surely you have given to us the task of pointing our attention in the direction of what is unseen. But at the same time, you have not left us alone. You have left us a comforter. You have given us one that makes it possible to trust in that which we cannot see. And so by your spirit, sir, would you help us now to focus our attention in that direction through the receiving of these elements. In Jesus' name, amen.